If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. This episode is also supported by our sponsor, Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. I was really excited to share this with you because I've actually been using Osea's skincare myself for the past few years, and I love it. The Hyaluronic C Serum specifically has been helping to keep my skin hydrated in this dry climate in California. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer, and the discount will automatically be applied when you check out. Again, that's oseamalibu.com slash green dreamer. Everywhere in the world, people are trying to improve the educational outcomes for young people. And also everywhere in the world, there's a separate group of people that's trying to improve and enhance the local ecosystem. The sort of fundamental argument of Billion Oyster Project is that those two things have to be brought together. That was Murray Fisher, who's dedicated the last 20 years to making New York Harbor healthier, more biodiverse, abundant, accessible, more well-known, and most importantly, more well-loved. He's the co-founder and chairman of the board of the Billion Oyster Project, which is an organization working to restore oyster reefs to New York Harbor through public education initiatives. And he's also the founder of New York Harbor School, a public high school built on the city's maritime experience, and that's been instilling environmental stewardship and on-water career skills. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how restoring oyster reefs will be a crucial step towards restoring the New York Harbor to being one of the most ecologically diverse marine ecosystems as it once was, the power in leading restoration and rewilding projects in the heart of urban landscapes, engaging different groups of people within the city as opposed to being out there in more remote regions, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. So 
along that journey of trying to figure out how I could be useful in helping protect the planet, I majored in biology in college at Vanderbilt University. And I actually took a year off to work for the Wildlife Conservation Society in Peru, where I was studying macaws. And I was sure that because I had sort of a disproportionately positive relationship with animals and wildlife, that I would probably be a wildlife biologist. And so I spent a year in the jungle studying macaws and monkeys. And almost a couple days into doing that, I was all of a sudden lonely and sure that these places needed to be preserved, but that my most useful thing would not necessarily be just studying them. And that I really was more interested in the human side of it and the human interaction with nature and how humans make decisions about how we manage natural resources. Mm. So I went back to college, finished my biology major, and I actually read the book River Keepers when I was a senior in college. And it was that book that really for me, was the first time that anyone had had articulated my own personal vision of the environment, our relationship to it, and how to protect it, with really the concept being the river is the central part of this community, in, in this case, the Hudson River in New York, and the people who use it and love it need to be armed with the tools to protect it. And in this case, it was environmental laws that river keepers went around enforcing and so I read that book and actually wrote Bobby Kennedy and John Cronin, who are the authors of the book and who ran Riverkeeper and said, I want to come work for you and essentially just forced my way into there and got hired through AmeriCorps. <laughs> so I was a Riverkeeper intern through AmeriCorps in 1998 to 1999 up here in New York. I was from Virginia. I thought I'd be up here for just a year or two. And what really happened is I fell deeply and forever in love with the Hudson River and the Hudson River Valley. And I was at age 23, given enormous responsibilities for helping protect the river and study the river and communicate about the river and study the river and actually helped create a museum about the Hudson River and worked on several lawsuits helping protect the river and spoke to dozens of schools. And I felt it's a long way to get to the answer, but I w felt like the responsibilities that I was given for helping protect this water body were helping me learn more information through more passion and more responsibility than I had in any of my previous years of schooling, of education. And so it was then that I actually thought this is how we should teach and train young people is through activating them and giving them responsibility for protecting our local ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So that was the sort of gem of creating the Harbor School, which we then created in 2003. And seven years later, 2010, we started working on the Billion Oyster Project. So to help us understand what it is that your Billion Oyster Project is working on, I think it's important for us to first get some historical context so we know why there's a need for such a restoration project. Can you walk us through what the New York Harbor used to be like and then what happened leading to the degradation of its marine ecology? Absolutely. So we were at Harbor School and we'd created a school about New York Harbor and we were realizing that kids were learning everything about New York Harbor, including that we're doing aquaculture and boats and sailing and water quality and science. But what were they all doing together? And we had a little project that we were doing with an organization called Baykeeper that was oyster gardening on the weekends. And we started looking, there was a book called The Big Oyster by Mark Kurlansky. 
We all were reading, all the teachers at Harvard School were reading The Big Oyster. And what it did is it laid out this incredible history of New York City as being the center of oyster production and oyster eating and oyster ecology for the entire world. And that entire history is something that we were not aware of previously. We had not, people had not thought of New York City as being a place filled with oysters. And so that book was really important for us because what it did is not only did it sort of, it laid out the case for why oysters matter. And it laid out all the specifics and all of the data. And in that book, it it documented that there were historically 220,000 acres of oyster reef in New York Harbor which means there were enough oysters in New York Harbor that every day, every drop of water in New York Harbor would have passed through an oyster, that these reefs would have been the main navigational hazard for ships that were entering for the colonists when they were coming into New York Harbor, and Henry Hudson would have had to navigate around those oyster reefs. And those oysters have been one of the primary sources of animal protein during the winters for the tens of thousands of Native Americans who lived in this region for thousands of years. But in just 150 years about of having colonized the United States and having settled here in New York, the colonists ate all of the oysters. And Mm -hmm. so by the late 1800s, there were no oysters left in New York Harbor. And in fact, they had to start farming them. So they brought oyster seed up from the Chesapeake Bay and the Delaware Bay, planted those seed throughout New York Harbor. And all the way until the early 1900s, we're eating essentially farmed oysters that were they were farming and raising on the bottom of New York Harbor. But by then, there were so many people in New York City, and there was so much more water being used because they'd created a real water supply system up with the Croton Aqueduct System in Westchester, that all of a sudden, there were tons of people were actually, all of the raw sewage that was created in New York City was going directly onto those oyster beds and people started getting sick. And so they closed the oyster beds Mm. and those oysters never recovered because again, they were just farmed. The wild oysters had been gone for a long time. And so pollution contributed to it a lot. Dredging for deeper channels contributed to it a lot, but mostly we ate those hundreds of thousands of acres of oyster reefs over the course of one to 200 years. And anyone who remembers that is gone. And so we used the big oyster as helping make the case that maybe New York can essentially rewild New York Harbor by repopulating oysters. And and, and and that's how we conceived of and launched the Billion Oyster Project. Now, what is the role of our oysters within the marine ecosystem? And given that we have to kind of revive the entire marine ecosystem of the New York Harbor? Why the focus specifically on restoring oysters? Well, I think the easiest way to think about it is that oysters are essentially like the temperate water analogs of coral reefs that live in the tropics. And so people understand that coral reefs provide habitat for all of the fish and plants and animals of the tropical water. They understand that coral reefs provide protection for islands and beaches from storms and waves. They understand that coral helps filter the water. Oysters provided all of those same roles here in temperate water like New York Harbor. They do the following. One is that they actually build ecosystem. They're called ecosystem engineers. So as oysters attach to one another, they build big reefs like coral do. 
And so that creates habitat. And that habit that would have been the dominant habitat structure for this entire estuary for all of the kinds of different fish and invertebrates that would have lived here historically. They would have hunted and spawned and lived and found mates and hidden from predators on amongst these oyster reefs. So those were all removed. So there was no more of that habitat. And the entire bottom of New York Harbor just became flat two-dimensional mud. So that's one thing is the habitat. The second thing is that oysters filter water. About the average is about a gallon an hour. So think of it as 24 gallons a day when it's warm temperature and they're functioning well. And so that filtration removes phytoplankton and algae, which is the main reason that New York Harbor and these estuaries are so turbid now is because of all the phytoplankton, all the algae. And so that doesn't allow sunlight to penetrate deeply down through the water column, which would have allowed more submerged aquatic vegetation, like essentially seaweed to grow. And so not only do we not have the oyster reefs, we don't have any of the seaweed, which creates even more habitat. So we've removed the two. By removing all the oysters, you actually remove most of the habitat types for all the other fish and invertebrates that would have historically lived in the harbor. And then on top of that, these reefs actually and have been documented to have provided protection of the islands of New York and similarly situated islands and estuaries around the world that had oyster reefs, you know, temperate water estuaries, protected them from storms. And so by removing the oysters, you actually remove the thing that was protect that would have helped protect city during storms. Mm -hmm. And so there's a tons of rationale and justification for a wide range of constituents for restoring these reefs. So your goal is to bring back one billion oysters to the New York Harbor by 2035, and you're well on your way. So far, your team has planted over 28 million oysters. What does this process entail in practice, and what sorts of collaborations or public engagements did you have to create to make this happen? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. I mean, the way that my partner Pete Malinowski and I approached it, and he's now the executive director of Billion Oyster Project. I'm the chairman of the board of Billion Oyster Project. We created it together. The way that we approached it was: this is a gigantic experiment that will require the buy-in and the help of every different kind of partnering constituent in the city. This is not something to be done by environmental groups. This is not something to be done just by school groups. This is not something where we can just raise a lot of money and do it ourselves. This is a project that we do not know how to do, that we cannot guarantee will work, but that we want to engage everyone in helping us do. And the reason we felt that that was important and what is very different, I think, about Billion Oyster Project is that restoring oysters to estuaries on the coast of the U.S. has been happening for decades. In, in that regard, what we're doing is nothing new. But it's often done by environmentalists and scientists and maybe universities and groups like that that are operating often, unfortunately, on the periphery of society. What we wanted to do is we wanted to bring the effort into the mainstream. And so the main partnership that helped create Billion Oyster Project, and that has helped sustain it and make it more successful, is literally with the New York City Department of Education. Mm. Billion Oyster Project is housed at the school that I created, the New York Harbor School. That's where our offices are. That's where our labs are. That's where our boats are. That's where our 32 employees work in and around 550 high school students. 
And our first big National Science Foundation grant was to create and develop curriculum for middle school students so that they could help both learn about oysters in New York Harbor, but also help actually do the studying and help do the actual restoration work. And so now we're at 80 public, um, mostly high need middle schools around New York City. Another big collaboration is that the limiting factor in being able to restore oysters to a water body, there are a bunch of limiting factors. One of them is that the water quality has to be good enough that oysters can actually reproduce and that the larvae that swim throughout the water column can settle onto a hard oyster shell and go through metamorphosis. And, and then actually they change into a sessile organism that will live in that one spot for the rest of its life and grow its own shell there. During that metamorphosis, they're particularly vulnerable to pollution. And so that has been one of the way, reasons that oysters have not come back in a place like New York Harbors because the water quality was too poor. So one of, that was one of the limiting factors. The good news is we found that the water quality is good enough to do it. The larvae do live through that metamorphosis and settling on, onto substrate. The other limiting factor is whether there are enough adults in the system. And obviously in New York Harbor, they're functionally extinct. There are not enough adults in the system. Without enough adults, you don't have enough larvae. So you have to have enough adults in the system to put enough larvae into the system to restore it. You have to have the water quality good enough, which we have thanks to the Clean Water Act. But the third one is you have to have enough substrate, enough things on the bottom for the oyster larvae to attach to. And the way in their favorite thing to attach to is other oyster shells. And so throughout New York City, there are about 700 restaurants that are serving thousands of oysters every day. And those oyster shells have been and mostly continue to just go into black plastic bags and get shipped in trucks down Interstate 95 to landfills up and down the East Coast. We need every one of those shells. And so we've created a shell collection program that works with restaurants to capture those shells. And then we actually take those shells and we dry them and cure them on Staten Island for a year under the sun so that they're actually biologically inert. And then we can use those shells in our lab and building our reefs. And so we have 80 restaurant partners that are at their own cost collecting, storing those oyster shells. And we've collected over a million pounds of oyster shells from those restaurants over the past couple of years. Wow. And so it's it's an interesting the way that someone has described doing an oyster project is it's kind of like a prism that no matter how you look at it, everyone sees something different. Some people see that it's workforce development. It's teaching kids how to weld and sail and do aquaculture and science. Some people see it as just education. It's teaching kids about the environment, getting them more engaged in their school. Some people see it as climate resiliency. It's helping build these reefs that could ultimately help protect the city. Some people see it as just strictly cleaning up New York Harbor, making the water cleaner or clearer. Some people, you know, fishermen see it as a way to pathway to increase in the abundance of desirable fish. For us, what we're trying to do with Billion Oyster Project, and this is probably the most important part, we want ecology to matter. We want the local ecosystem, in this case, a local marine ecosystem, to be in the city's consciousness. Mm. We want it to be in the consciousness of city planners, of city politicians, of business people, uh, as people sit around a table making decisions, how will we run and plan and design and live in the city? We want the local marine ecosystem to have a seat at that table. That's what Billion Oyster Project has done. Mm. And it's what's so cool about it is it's working. 
in that regard, it's working. There's a much higher level of consciousness about oysters and, and marine ecosystems and New York Harbor than there was before we started it. And I don't have a specific way to, that, that we've measured that, that I can share with you, but it is apparent and really exciting. Right. I was going to say, I really love how you've been able to engage such a diverse group of people in this project. What do you think is the value or what do you think this has made possible that perhaps restoration projects further out where not a lot of people live? What's the difference between having those restoration projects versus having ones like yours where it really is in the heart of a city where there are so many different groups of people engaging in it. Like, what does that make possible for us? Uh, I mean, there's so many answers to that. First of all, going back a little bit, I worked for three years at Waterkeeper Alliance, which is the umbrella group for hundreds of river keepers around the world. And part of why I created the Harbor School as a public school in New York City was I wanted that the environmental movement that I had participated in, that I was working in, I wanted it to win. And if we want to win, we have to engage a much broader group of people, right? Like uh, the movement did not have a chance of winning if, if it did not look like and reflect the demographics of the people that I saw around me in New York City. And so to me, a big part was how do we teach and train young people that reflect the city's demographic about the environment and create actual pathways to working on helping manage and restore and protect our marine resources. So I think launching Billion Oyster Project out of the Harbor School, which is a very diverse public high school in New York City, was a key part of why it has had the success it has had in reaching a, a wide range of people. And I think that people love to see a multicultural group of young people scuba diving and driving boats in New York Harbor, restoring oysters. It's mm -hmm. just an amazing intersection of things that people value. So I think that that's one big reason. The second thing that I think has been really important lesson that we've learned is that New York Harbor is also probably one of the hardest places to do this work. It's a very busy harbor. It's still a polluted harbor. It's cold. It's too cold to really get in and around six months out of the year. And so it's not a very friendly place to go down to the water's edge and fall in love with the marine environment. It's actually a really tough sell. You know, we sort of assume, oh, you take a kid out sailing or you take a kid out scuba diving, you take a kid out fishing and they fall in love with it. Well, not if it's cold and dirty and smelly and scary, right? And that is actually the case with New York Harbor is that it's very hard to get down to the water's edge. There's 600 miles of waterfront, but very few places where a teenager can happen to find themselves with access directly into the water, right? So there's almost no access to the water. And when you do access it, as I said, it's, it's pretty polluted, it's often cold, it's a lot of traffic, it's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. And so what we realize is the implications for the model that we've created here are almost infinite in that this model could work wherever there are disengaged young people who are not feeling like school matters or that school is exciting or that school is fun or school is valuable and where there's also an ecosystem that has been degraded, right? Anywhere where those two things are happening, this model can work. And by the way, that's everywhere. 
right? Everywhere in the world, people are trying to improve the educational outcomes for young people. And also everywhere in the world, there's a separate group of people that's trying to improve and enhance the local ecosystem. The sort of fundamental argument of Billion Oyster Project is that those two things have to be brought together. Mm. That's, the, that's the most important lesson that I want to share is that if we keep teaching and training kids for a dozen years without nature, without nature, not just as a piece of it, but actually as the central local ecosystem, without, as a central part of it, it won't work. We won't teach and train kids who will take care of this place. And at the same time, if we keep trying to restore ecosystems without kids, it won't work because we'll continue to raise a group of people who don't care about, know about their local ecosystem. So the it's essentially saying in, to, to all of the money and people and policies and programs that are working on public education and all of the money and policy and programs and people who are working on protecting and restoring the environment, that these two things have to come together. And that is almost too big of a thing for people to wrap their heads around. But if you start looking at individual neighborhoods and individual towns and individual rivers, you can picture it. You can picture a school about that local forest and a school about that local river. That's what we're saying. And so it's about really a simpler way of doing it is just starting to work that kind of environmental, local environmental education into local school curriculum. I do feel like oftentimes we can think of restoration or conservation as work that is done in more rural or remote places and that that concept may be incompatible with or separate to urban life. So I love this integration of the two because by engaging people in cities that may feel disconnected to what's out there and the work that needs to be done, we can make people feel like they're a part of this and be able to get people to care more about what's happening out there. Because sometimes when we're so disconnected from things happening across the globe or in another state, we may not be as engaged in those decisions or know why they matter to us. But when we can feel that, feel how that connects to us on a day-to-day basis within our local ecologies, maybe maybe that's what we really need to be able to engage exactly. a larger group of people. No, exactly. And that's what I think is so cool about this model is that it, 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 if we can essentially rewild a big portion of New York City through the Billion Oyster Project and all of the partnerships and all of the other work that's happening along with it, it is saying exactly that. It's saying you don't have to go far away to connect to or restore or study or value nature. Like wherever you live, if you can do it in New York City, then literally you can do it anywhere. And that's what I think is so powerful about it. That And, and it's also what we are trying to do sort of almost a sort of bigger philosophical goal is that New York Harbor is a several hundred thousand acre open space that is not taken advantage of by all of the young people in the city. And if we want to raise young people who are strong emotionally and are strong physically and are strong intellectually and who can take chances and take risks and make decisions and think critically, we have off limits to them this gigantic natural playground. Mm. And that's crazy. So really it's about how do, we, how do we make the harbor a place that invites young people 
to learn. It's got to be cleaner. It has to be more accessible. And wouldn't it be much cooler if instead of having 0.001% of its historical fish abundance, it had 50% of what it used to have. And it was filled with abundance of everything from oysters to whales. That would make New York Harbor a place that young people could go and learn and value nature and be excited by nature the exact same way that I was as a five-year-old out on a farm in Virginia. This is all getting me really excited to think about our possibilities going forward and hopefully is inspiring our listener as well to think about ways that we can rewild our local ecosystems wherever we are, even if we're in urban landscapes like New York. I want to move on and talk about ocean acidification a little. So over the last 200 years, 550 billion tons of carbon dioxide have been absorbed by the oceans, making them more acidic and more corrosive. From my understanding, this is bad news for all shellfish because it makes them less able to use the calcium carbonate in the water to build their shells with. So it may make them weaker and grow more slowly. To what extent has this impacted the restoration work you're doing and how are you ensuring that the oysters planted into the harbors are able to thrive? It's a really good question and it's gonna pretty quickly get outside of my sort of level of sophistication here because here's the answer is that Currently, it's not a problem for us on the East Coast, at least not where we are in New York, like it is on the West Coast, where it's actually becoming a real problem. Mm. And that's because of the way that the currents in the ocean work and that it's push, pushing up more, more acidic water along those coasts that we don't have that happening here as much. And so our oysters are not suffering from that. We're finding that the average oyster in New York Harbor that we've planted out of those about 30 million we've planted 30% are living beyond their third year, but during that second and third year, they're starting to reproduce. And so that is, for us, a really amazing sign that we're finding our baby oysters all over hard surfaces and substrates throughout the entire harbor. So it's not ocean acidification is a huge issue all over the world for a bunch of reasons, but it's not really affecting our oyster aquaculture and how we grow oysters too much yet, although we'll see if it will. And we are already doing this work in such a challenging environment that we feel like the way to approach it is to keep asking the kids and the policymakers and the partners to help us just solve the problem of how do we restore this ecosystem. And, you know, there will always be new challenges. So I think it, it, it will just be another challenge that we will have to work with. But I don't think that that's going to be a major obstacle for us um, over the over the course of this project, which hopefully we will be able to you know, plant the billion oysters by 2035. Mm. The other thing is oysters, as you mentioned, are natural water purifiers. They eat phytoplankton or small bits of algae suspended in the water. So as they filter the water, they're still trying to get their own food sources from the water, which are not necessarily the man-made pollutants that we've dumped into our oceans that they end up consuming as well while they're filtering the water for their food. Do we know how the chemical pollutants we've dumped into our waterways are affecting our oysters' health and the health of other marine species in the New York Harbor? 
Oh, gosh, that's a really good question also. And there have been, I mean, what we do know is that we are very careful to say that oysters do not actually clean the water because what they do do is they make the water clear and they remove all of the suspended solids in the water. And that is that is very good for a lot of reasons. But if they, most of the, especially heavy metals and other toxins, the oysters will actually incorporate into their bodies and into their flesh and into their organs. And so when they die, that stuff is still back in the harbor. Mm. We think that that certainly that the pollution and the poor water quality is why the oysters are not surviving longer. But it's also, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons that it's hard to do this work is because there is an, an argument, and some people make the argument that by putting these oysters into the harbor that are going to be polluted animals because they're filtering out the pollution and it's in their bodies, it's almost an attractive nuisance for people who may want to eat them because then it's inviting them to eat something that's polluted. Um, and so we are constantly trying to push back on that way of thinking in saying that we can't not restore nature just because we've already polluted it. Mm. You know, by that same theory, we, we should remove all of the fish because they have mercury and PCBs in them. And no one wants to go out and just remove the fish because they're a potential pollutant if you ate them. So that's our same argument with the oysters. But I think that what I would love to do is I could share with you some of the studies that have been done of the wide range of pollutants in the harbor and in the water that do end up in the oysters. But it's just, there's, there's literally hundreds of chemicals and toxins. And so it's too complicated to sort of generalize. Wow. So with this in mind, certainly the Oyster Restoration Project is vital because we have to look at restoration from all angles. But with that in mind, what else beyond restoring our oysters what else needs to be done to return the New York Harbor to being one of the most biologically productive, diverse, and dynamic environments on the planet as it once was? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, we need to, so restoring oysters, obviously a key one. We need to stop pollution into the harbor. There continues to be pollution from tons of sources. One of the main sources is actually, it's called combined sewer overflows, which is the sewer system in New York City works during dry weather, and every toilet that is flushed and every shower and every commercial and business use of water is treated in the sewage treatment plant. But when it rains, all of the storm drains in the city are also connected to the sewage treatment plant system. And so it means that if all of it were combined as it is, it would actually overflow and flood those sewage treatment plants. And so they actually divert all of that combined sewer overflow during rain events directly into the harbor instead of sending it to sewage treatment plants. And so there are billions of gallons of that mostly raw sewage that comes into New York Harbor every year because the sewage treatment plants cannot handle the volume. And so it's a huge problem that the city has been working to solve and that we're hoping that that can continue to be improved. One of the main things that could happen is if we were better at capturing the rainwater on our roofs and in our streets and in our parking lots, and so that's green infrastructure. There's a lot of green infrastructure being built, but we're far way off from solving the combined sewer overflow problem. And it's a problem everywhere, including places like Los Angeles and any cities now where they did really good work to create the sewage treatment plants finally. But by connecting the storm sewers to them from the, and the storm drains to them, and now this new issue of what do you do during rain events. Another huge thing that we could do here is remove all of the unnecessary dams in the Hudson River. 
the Hudson River ha- is lucky because it has no dams on the main stem, which is why it still has sturgeon and striped bass spawning in it. But it has hundreds of small dams on all of its tributaries, which are keeping the smaller fish from migrating and spawning. And so that is, you know, where those dams are necessary, fine, but many of them are not necessary anymore. And so removing those would allow eels and shad and herring and alewives and tons of other fish to be able to go up the river and spawn in all of these tributaries. And that would increase the abundance and the biodiversity a lot. So less pollution, fewer dams. I would argue more local ecosystem restoration efforts in places that's happening, like we need more wetlands. We need softer edges instead of the hard edge, which has no habitat at all. If we have softer edges around the 600 miles of waterfront, we could have more wetlands and more grasses and more rocks and more marshes. That would help absorb wave energy and provide habitat and provide access. Right now, what you have is you have a fence and then a bulkhead straight down into the water. That's the most common way that people see New York Harbor. That's not good for nature. It's not good for interacting with nature. And it's not good for absorbing the waves and the storm. So the shorelines, the runoff, the pollution, the dams, and local restoration projects. Mm. I'm really loving that picture you painted of what we could realize for ourselves. So when you envision a future when all our waterways are pristine, full of biodiversity and life and clean enough for children to safely swim and play in, what does that vision look like? And to close, what are some simple things we can do to support cleaner and healthier waterways and oceans? I really think everyone should demand that they be able to catch a fish in their local waterway and feel comfortable eating it without the threat of getting them or their families sick, which right now is not the case. Mostly the fish that you eat anywhere in this country, there is some risk that it has some toxin or some, you know, often mercury or PCBs. That is, that is a resource and experience that's been stolen by polluters. And so we have to continue to clean up and continue to demand that people have the ability to go do that. We have to, I think, the actually actively people, I think it's a very powerful political act to swim in your local water body. It is a very intimate connection to that water body, and it is a very strong signal to send to decision makers and policy makers about what we want to do and how we want to use this. And I think, you know, continuing to protect our local water supplies Instead of everyone moving to drinking bottled water that comes from no, nobody knows where, <laughs> we've invested so much money in, in creating these safe drinking water supplies all over the country, and they need more protection. They need more woods to help protect the water around the reservoirs. They need new pipes. They need Some of them need filtration plants. So I think investing in the clean water at the source demanding that we be able to use the resource, actively use it for fishing and for swimming. And there's, you know, the group that I worked at, and I'm actually sitting in their office now because I'm still very close to them, Waterkeeper Alliance, has water keepers, which are organizations and individuals all over the world who are actively working with communities to do just that, to do that work. And so I think, you know, find your local water keeper help support them doing this work, protecting water bodies around the world. And there's a really cool app that's called Swim, Drink, Fish, 
which is help. It's a citizen science tool for people helping sort of monitor what's happening at their local water body. And that's made by the Lake Ontario Waterkeeper. They created this app that's now being used all over the world. And it's a great way of people sharing information about what's happening at their swimming beach and sort of crowdsourcing this demand for clean water. So you may have heard from my last few episodes, I am bringing back our 2020 Green Dreamer planners, and that should hopefully be ready by December. Making last year's version was a huge learning curve for me, and to improve upon that, in addition to featuring the major environmental awareness dates to note, weekly inspirational quotes from our past guests, as well as spacious two full spreads dedicated to each week so you can dream big, plan, and make the most of each and every day, the Green Dreamer planner will also be printed on a 100% post-consumer recycled paper instead of last year's FSC but virgin paper. And it's also going to be printed locally to me and hand-bound in Los Angeles instead of overseas as it was last year in China. I will keep you posted along this creation process, but if you may be interested, you can sign up to our weekly digest at greendreamer.com slash subscribe to stay updated and also so that I can gauge interest on whether this is something that I can continue doing. For now, though, to our final Five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? A real life changer for me recently was called Bringing Nature Home by Douglas Tallamy. And it was extremely helpful because it makes the extraordinarily powerful case that with all of the problems around the world, biodiversity, global warming, pollution, the most powerful thing you can do for the planet is to bring biodiversity and abundance to your little yard, wherever you live. Mm. And that right now our yards are 40 million acres of mostly sterile turf grass, and it requires chemicals and lawn mowing and leaf blowing, and they're mostly not native trees and shrubs And that means that they're mostly not available for insects to eat those leaves of those trees and shrubs, which means you've, in all these heavily managed lawns all over the country, we've sort of removed the foundation of the food chain, which are insects. And so Bringing Nature Home makes the case for focus on bringing native plants and trees into your yard. You will bring back insects and birds and mammals. And I've been doing that ever since I left the city a year and a half ago, and it has changed my life. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I luckily, for better or for worse, I don't really, as depressing as this stuff is, and I read all the depressing stuff, I don't really get depressed. I think that's part of my personality is I'm an optimistic person. I've got an amazing family that helps me stay optimistic. I think I tell myself that I'm really lucky. I'm just a really privileged person who's had the opportunity to see and experience the natural world so much that I feel a really strong responsibility for your work on this planet over the course of your life is doing the best you can to help protect it for everyone for generations. And so I just feel so strongly that that's what I'm here to do, that um, that keeps me sort of inspired and encouraged to keep working. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? For my health, one thing I'm working on is all is actually also for the planet is I'm trying to, I grew up on a beef cattle farm. We had 300 cows. We ate steak virtually every other night or a hamburger or some animal. <laughs> I'm trying to eat a lot less meat 
I'm doing it both for my health and for the planet's health. And I think it's a pretty exciting time to find that there's that intersection, a reawakening of the most, one of the most powerful things we can do for our own bodies and the planet's health is to eat less meat. Mm-hmm. And so I still, I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, but I am eating a, a lot less meat than before. And probably, you know, for me, it's only one or two meals a week that are uh, not plant-based. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? A new thing I'm working on is I've fallen in love with an app called iNaturalist. iNaturalist is an app that uh, helps you by taking a picture. It uses a computer image recognition to help identify any living organism in the world. And then you can, you can record that, observe that, identify that, and then you can share it. And by doing that, scientists and policymakers all over the world are getting millions of images of where things, different species are around the world. And so I've created a project in my hometown of Bedford, New York, where we're trying to actually engage all of the citizens of this 18,000 people. We're trying to engage everyone and let's go out and observe and identify all of the species in Bedford. Because if we don't know what we have, how can we ever make good decisions about what we do here? And so for the first time, there's actually a tool that allows citizens to do that. So I'm actually hosting a big training event for that on September 29th. I'm really seeing this common thread of how you really value local engagement. And I think that's been really inspiring for me throughout this conversation. And I'm sure for our listeners as well. So thank you for sharing that with us. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? You know, what I, one thing is that sometimes I feel like... Um, worried about the future, worried, do youth get enough nature? Are they connected to the natural world enough? Who's going to take care of the planet? But then I see that there's just this huge, it seems to me like the planet will be saved by the young people because there's this huge, powerful movement of diverse and young people around the world who are saying enough and that we will we are not okay with the way that the world is operating right now because it is destroying our planet. And, you know, the Sunrise Movement, I'm really inspired. I would just say I'm really inspired by the coalescing of youth around this idea of stopping climate change for the generations. And it's just incredible to see how powerful it is. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Murray's work at Billion Oyster Project, you can head to www.billionoysterproject.org. And you can also follow their team on Instagram at Twitter at Billion Oyster and on Facebook at Billion Oyster Project. I'll have all this linked in the show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com. Murray, if our listener wants to support or get involved with your work in New York, what are some calls to action you'd like to share? There's on that website, there are so many different ways. We have a huge volunteer program. We have events, weekly events. Some of them are just team, uh, sort of community friend raising events. We have fundraisers. I would, if, if, if you live in New York and you want to help us, go to billionoysterproject.org, get on our mailing list, volunteer, and get your school engaged. We always need more schools that are participating in Billion Oyster Project. We need more volunteers and we need more restaurants that serve oysters to uh, participate in our shell collection program. We obviously need more corporate partners as well. And so we're trying to make Billion Oyster Project be a way where anyone can come to us and say, I want to help and that we have a way to fit them in. And right now we can't do that with everyone, but we're doing a pretty good job of it. So please check out BillionOysterProject.org.
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and vision with us and for everything you're doing to help bring back healthy and biodiverse waters to the New York Harbor and beyond. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? You know, I think one thing that was very powerful for me is actually a quote that I read when I was working at Waterkeeper and I was trying to make my decision about what to do next. And I was thinking, gosh, I want to start a school about New York Harbor. And can I read this quote to you? Yeah. Okay, so this quote totally changed the course of my life. Um, it's by William Hutchinson Murray, and it's, it's called, it's about commitment. And, and I was thinking, should I start the Harbor School? And the quote says, until one is committed, there's hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. That changed me because I actually decided I want to start this school about New York Harbor and literally all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance came my way, which I never would have imagined did. And it's the same with Billion Oyster Project. When Pete and I decided to do the Billion Oyster Project, the most powerful thing we did was just decide to do the Billion Oyster Project. We didn't wait to make sure that it was a perfect plan or that we had everything in line. We just started telling people we are going to restore a billion oysters to New York Harbor. Will you help? And every single person said, oh my God, that's amazing. I'd love to help. How can I help? Here's a way I can help. Here's someone I know can help. So mm -hmm. I just can't emphasize enough. If you think you see a way that you can have impact on the planet, do it. Start it now. If you're five years old or if you're 50 years old, it does not matter. People committing to do something bold is the most powerful thing in the world. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, Osea Malibu, a skincare line founded by a family of women inspired by the sea and that formulates botanical-powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer. Again, that's oseamalibu.com slash greendreamer. Oh, and if you're in the LA area, make sure to stop by their Osea Venice Skincare Studio for their therapeutic facials. As always, you can sign up to our weekly digest to get solutions-driven news delivered to you at greendreamer.com slash subscribe. And if you want to come say hello to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast or at Kamea Shane. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.